0: Well, we're going to read from the Bible together now, and we're going to read from two parts of the Old Testament. The first is from Exodus chapter 20, and we're just going to read one verse from Exodus chapter 20. You'll find it on page 61 of the Pew Bibles. We're going to read the seventh commandment together, and it's Exodus 20 verse 14. Exodus 20 verse 14, and it's page 61 of the Pew Bibles. Boys and girls, we were thinking about this commandment this morning through the children's address. And your mums and dads and big people will be thinking about it later on in our service tonight. So the seventh commandment is in Exodus 20, verse 14. And this is God's word to us. The seventh commandment is, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. And then we're going to read a second part of the Bible, a slightly longer part of the Bible. And we're turning back a book and we're going to the book of Genesis. Genesis. Genesis chapter 39, and you'll find it on page 33 of the Pew Bibles, page 33. So we were in Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible, and now we're going back to the first book of the Bible, to the book of Genesis, Genesis 39, and it's page 33 in the Pew Bibles, and we're going to read this whole chapter, this whole story together. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came, into, came in Came in to laugh, to, to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife had spoken to him, This is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph, and showed him steadfast love, and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this evening. Well, let's pray together for just a moment. Father we thank you so much for your word for how it's living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword and we pray tonight that you'd help us as we think about our next commandment a difficult commandment uh, an awkward commandment to talk about but we pray that you would come by your spirit and speak to us all and challenge us all and we pray in Jesus name amen. Uh, You'll find the Seventh Commandment on page 61 of your pew Bibles, but we are going to be moving around the Bible tonight, and uh, I'll give you page numbers and references when necessary. So we're on to the Seventh Commandment tonight. Uh, The last time we were in the commandments, we looked at number six, do not murder. Uh, The lights went out that night. Hopefully they won't go out tonight. Uh, The Seventh Commandment is one of those parts of the Bible that gives us an awkward sit. And what I mean by that is that tonight we're going to be talking about things that We don't normally talk about in church or certainly not that often Uh, you might think that the things we're going to talk about tonight shouldn't be mentioned in church we should just stick to the gospel and not delve into these matters unfortunately the bible doesn't allow us to do that and the way we approach the bible in here uh, uh, the way we approach the bible here in church doesn't allow us to do that either Uh, here in church we go from verse to verse chapter to chapter book to book And that means we can't avoid the difficult passages the awkward passages even the passages that make us blush with that disclaimer in mind let's begin to think about the seventh commandment it's recorded in exodus 20 verse 14 you shall not commit adultery in 1631 the printers of one edition of the king james bible were fined 300 pounds by archbishop laud Now that doesn't sound like very much, but back then it was the equivalent of a lifetime's earnings. Their crime consisted in leaving one word out of the biblical text. So they were printing the Bible in 1631, King James Version, and the printers left one word out. You might know the story, but the printers omitted the word not, and their mistake turned the seventh commandment on its head. Exodus 20, 17 In the 1631 King James Version of the Bible said you shall commit adultery. They forgot the word not. If ever there was a mistake that was so simple but so devastating it was probably this one. As a result of the mistake the 1631 edition became known as the wicked Bible. It's hard to imagine a similar reaction today though in light of the massive landslide in private and public morality. Today, adultery is generally regarded as a private activity between consenting adults with little public consequence. It wasn't always the case. You might know know or remember the uh, Profumo affair that brought down a conservative government in the 1960s. Uh, John Profumo was a cabinet minister and he had an affair with a 19-year-old model. He denied the affair in parliament but ended up confessing to it just a few weeks later. The scandal negatively affected the government of the day and Labour won the next general election. You compare that to where we are today as a culture. During Covid, the health secretary, Matt Hancock, had an extramarital affair that was widely reported in the news and online. The consequences for him in his role as health secretary? None whatsoever. He left his wife and three children, but continued to lead the government response to one of the greatest crises of our generation. Today, adultery is generally considered as a private activity between consenting adults with little public consequence. And Western society is no friend of sexual purity. Society assumes that that adults are, are sexually active and expects fornication and cohabitation. It doesn't aim to promote sexual purity, but attempts to control the results of impurity. You just have to think about the provocative scenes and programs that dominate our television screens at the moment. It's hard to find a program that doesn't have some kind of inappropriate scene in it. Then there are programs like Love Island that actively promote promiscuity and sexual sin. We can't just apply apply that to to, to one specific program though. A study found that you encounter sexual material more than 10,000 times a year through TV. And also by a ratio of more than 10 to 1. The relationships in the TV programmes you watch involve sex outside of marriage. Culture is preaching a gospel of immorality to us through all kinds of media. It's preaching a gospel of immorality to our young people and we feel a little bit awkward when we talk about it. But that shouldn't be the case because what we have as Christians is a better way and a richer understanding of these things. Let me read you a long quote from C.S. Lewis that backs that thought up. And then we'll think about this commandment together. This comes from Mere Christianity, one of Lewis's best works on this issue of marriage, sex and adultery. C.S. Lewis writes this, and it is a long quote, so try and stick with me if you can. Lewis writes, I know that some muddle-headed Christians have talked as if Christianity thought that sex or the body or pleasure were bad in themselves, but they were wrong. Christianity is almost the only one of the great religions which thoroughly approves of the body, which believes that matter is good, that God himself once took on a human body, that some kind of body is going to be given to us even in heaven and is going to be an essential part of our happiness, our beauty and our energy. Christianity has glorified marriage more than any other religion and nearly all the greatest love poetry in the world has been has been produced by Christians. If anyone says that sex in itself is bad, Christianity contradicts him at once. There's nothing to be ashamed of in enjoying your food. There would be everything to be ashamed of if, ha- if half the world made food the main interest of their lives and spent their time looking at pictures of food and dribbling and smacking their lips. I do not say that you and I are individually responsible for the present situation. Our ancestors have handed over to us organisms which are warped in this respect. And we grow up surrounded by propaganda in favor of unchastity. There are people who want to keep our sex instinct inflamed in order to make money out of us. Because, of course, a man with an obsession is a man who has very little sales resistance. God knows our situation. He will not judge us as if we had no difficulties to overcome. Told you it was a long quote. You maybe didn't catch all of it. So let me just summarize it for you. Lewis says several things. He says that what God has created is good. So that means that our bodies are good, marriage is good, and sex is good. Lewis also says that it's not our fault that the world has a warped view of these things. We're surrounded by propaganda in favor of unchastity, he says. And we are, we've kind of touched on that. But he goes on and points out that God knows our situation and that he hasn't left us to our own devices. And that's where the Seventh Commandment comes in. Instead of being in the Bible to spoil our fun and to promote a kind of Puritan-type attitude, the Seventh Commandment is for our good. It gives us a pathway to freedom, if you like. So what we're going to do tonight is think about four different applications of this commandment. Our structure is very simple simple tonight, and hopefully it'll help you to follow what I'm saying. As we think about the Seventh Commandment, we're going to think about the positive application the challenging application, the practical application, and the gospel application. should say that we will be moving around the Bible. I've said that already, especially in points two and three, but I'll keep you right with few Bible numbers uh, as well. So let's think, first of all, about the positive application of the seventh commandment. Uh, the, the shorter catechism's answer to what is required in the seventh commandment is this. It says, the seventh commandment requires us to preserve our own and our neighbor's chastity In heart, speech, and behaviour. In short, it teaches the sanctity of marriage. Marriage is not an accidental element of creation, it's a purposeful and essential element of creation. It's not a convention to be followed, it's not a humanly devised social construct or experiment. It's a divine institution providing the cornerstone of civil society. Put in simple terms, marriage is God's idea. It's become the norm today for couples to reverse God's order of things by putting sex before marriage and then often reluctantly formalizing their relationship in a marriage ceremony. But the marriage ceremony reminds us that the welfare of human society hinges upon the marriage bond being held in high honor. A marriage is what theologians often call a creation ordinance. So when I marry a couple at the front of church here in Buckingham, I'm required by PCI to say, read, and believe a certain statement. Here it is. Christian marriage is an ordinance of God. Since the beginning of creation, God, in his gracious purpose, provided marriage as the accepted way in which a man and a woman may come together as husband and wife. This is the only basis on which marriage can take place within the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. That that, that statement is based on what we're told about marriage in the early chapters of Genesis And it's clear on what marriage is. It's a creation ordinance and it's between a man and a woman. No other pairing is marriage, no matter what we're told. The Bible says that marriage is a loving, lasting, binding, solemn, exclusive covenant of companionship companionship, in which a man and a woman begin to think, act and feel as one. The focus for husband and wife is to work together and please one another. To become one flesh means that to hurt one's husband or wife is to hurt yourself. The pattern for each is clear. The husband is to love his wife sacrificially, protecting and cherishing her. And the wife is to love, honor and obey her husband. Now, a little bit like what we said about abortion and euthanasia. That is dangerous madness to our culture today. What we've just talked about, what we've just said is is considered dangerous in our culture today but the bible holds up marriage as a pathway to freedom in the privacy and sanctity of marriage there is comfort safety and freedom so that's the positive application of the seventh commandment we tried to think about that with the boys and girls this morning god in his wisdom has given us this really great relationship to enjoy with someone else our world has warped our thinking on what it's like we laugh at cheap jokes about marriage we see perverted ver- per- perverted versions of it celebrated throughout culture. But this is a great gift to us from God and we should honor marriage. And for those of us who are married, we should treasure what God has given us. Now we could spend a whole lot more time on the positive side of the commandment, but we're going to move on. We're going to think now about the challenging application of the seventh commandment. The challenging application of the seventh commandment. Again, the short catechism is really helpful for us when thinking about this. Question 72 asks, what is forbidden by the seventh commandment? And the answer is, the seventh commandment forbids all impure thoughts, words, and actions. It's saying that to commit adultery is to sin against God, our body, the partner in the affair, our spouse, and our partner's spouse. Adultery is a betrayal, an intrusion, and a rejection of God's instruction, which has been provided for our good. The adulterer separates what God has joined together and fails to love love his neighbor as himself. Now, we might have the same thought as we did about the sixth commandment. I have never murdered anyone and I have also never committed adultery. We do not rest in the assumption that we've never broken this commandment. And that's mainly because of what Jesus says about it. The thing about the seventh commandment, and we've noticed this with the other commandments as well, is that God is not just concerned with our outward or obe- outward obedience; He's concerned more about the posture of our hearts. It's with that in mind that we read the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. What did Jesus have to say about the about the seventh commandment? We'll turn to Matthew chapter five. You'll find it on page eight hundred and ten of the Pew Bibles, page eight one zero, Matthew chapter five, and we're just going to read a couple of verses. Uh, verses 27 and 28. This is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and he's interpreting the seventh commandment. What does he say? It's page 810 of the Pew Bibles, Matthew 5, 27 and 28. Jesus says, "'You have heard that it was said, "'You shall not commit adultery. "'But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman "'with lustful intent has already committed adultery "'with her in his heart.'" What Jesus is saying there is that when a man looks upon another man's wife with lust, he is an adulterer in God's eyes. Likewise, a wife must not surrender herself to indecent thoughts when she thinks about a married man because she is guilty of adultery in her heart. Jesus says that lust lies at the root of adultery. Therefore, the seventh commandment speaks to more than just those of us who are married. It speaks to everyone who is tempted to lust. Lust is an act of contempt, reducing someone to a source of, of sexual gratification and nothing more. As someone has put it in this very helpful way, they've said that the sixth commandment prohibited, uh, prohibited regarding our neighbor as expendable. The seventh commandment prohibits regarding our neighbor as consumable. sixth commandment prohibits regarding our neighbor as expendable. Do not murder. The seventh commandment prohibits regarding our neighbor as consumable. consumable. Uh, Do not commit adultery. Now notice that Jesus condemns everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent. Uh, Lust uh, lust takes many forms, but it's directly connected to what we do with our eyes. Jesus is not talking about the casual glance in which we may notice that another person is attractive. He's talking about the lingering look, the evaluating gaze. Jesus is really saying that we shouldn't allow our hearts to follow our eyes. And that's intensely helpful for you to remember. It's perhaps the reason behind what Job once said. He said, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? It's a challenging application. We should not commit adultery. We should not indulge in lust. But what should we do? Well, we should restore the dignity of those who have suffered at the hands of a culture steeped in the lie that it won't hurt to look. As followers of Jesus, those committed to keeping the seventh commandment, we'll become our sister's keepers and we'll work to end sex trafficking and rehabilitate those that it's exploited. As followers of Jesus, we'll advocate for victims of sexual abuse. As followers of Jesus, we'll work to raise a generation of children and young people who understand pornography as lethal not just to the individual or marriages, but to wider society. As followers of Jesus, we'll we'll fight against messages and images that objectify women and men. And as followers of Jesus, we'll embrace and model sexual fidelity, the sexual fidelity that is God's design for our good. So the positive application, the challenging application. Thirdly, the practical application. The thing about what Jesus says about adultery and lust is that it's really serious. So serious that you might want to think about dismemberment. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5:29 and 30. It's uh, still page 810 of the Pew Bibles. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. If ever there was a passage that tested a literal reading of scripture, it's probably this one. Is Jesus actually saying that the solution to lust is self-mutilation? It's obviously not. If only the conquering of lust was as simple as as removing the offending member. As with all sin, our offending eyes and hands and feet and ears and lips and tongues and noses serve at the pleasure of our hearts. What our hearts delight to do, our body parts rush to accomplish. We need a better blade than any forged by human hands, and we have one. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart." It's with that in mind we come to a story from scripture that has a lot to teach us when it comes to lust and temptation. Turn right back in your Bibles to Genesis 39. It's page 33 of the Pew Bibles. This is a really famous story and we've read all of it together tonight. It's the part in Genesis where Joseph is approached and enticed by Potiphar's wife to commit adultery. Now We've read the story already together this evening so we're not going to go over the details of the text But there are four practical features of Joseph's response to sexual temptation that are good for us to mention. First of all, Joseph was decisive. He doesn't argue with Potiphar's wife. He just refuses. He would rather lose his cloak than lose his character. He had this issue settled in his mind before the day of crisis came. You can't make a decision like Joseph's in the heat of the moment The only way to deal with it is to plan your answer in the cold light of day. It's a little bit like cutting logs for firewood in the middle of summer. You know that one day in the future, winter is coming. Joseph's response was decisive. He had the the issue settled in his mind before it happened. Decisive, it was also principled. If you look at Genesis 39, 8 and 9, Joseph says that he can't commit this sin Because it's against his master. He can't betray the man who has put such confidence in him. And he points out that that to obey his master's wife would be to disobey his master. Joseph also knows the gravity of what Potiphar's wife is asking him to do. Joseph knows that in the final analysis that sin is an offence against God. Adultery with Potiphar's wife would have been an act of iniquity. But he says... How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph is decisive, he's principled and he's unyielding. It's one thing to resist temptation in its first attack. It's quite another to resist it on a daily basis. Sometimes we might muster enough strength and courage to get past the first temptation and then be proud of ourselves for not having yielded only to give in the very next time. So here's the silly example of that crisps. I love them, you know that. At home at the moment, I think there are three bags of my favorite types of crisps. Great selection, great scenes, but I'm, I'm running at the moment, or I'm supposed to be, so I'm kind of watching what I'm eating. You can't be an athlete and eat share bags of crisps every night. And so there's regularly a war in my mind. I know where the crisps are, I can see the packaging, I can hear the bag opening. On any given night, I might reach 9.30 and think to myself, do you know what? I have done so well. I have fought the battle, I have won. Stephen, well done. You didn't eat the crisps. Off you go, treat yourself to a big share bag of crisps. Congratulate yourself, you did it. Now it's a silly example, but it's not hard to think about the same situation when it comes to a relationship with a work colleague who isn't your wife or husband. It's not hard to think about the same situation when it comes to your phone or tablet or laptop. Joseph's response to temptation was decisive, principled, unyielding, and ruthless. That's the fourth thing. It was ruthless. As Potiphar's wife makes her advance and grabs Joseph's, Joseph's cloak, what does he do? He leaves it in her hand and he runs out of the house. He suffers the consequences, as we read in the chapter. Potiphar's wife lies about him and he's thrown in prison, but he's ruthless. He leaves the cloak in her hand. You can build a reputation over 30 years and ruin it in 30 seconds. This is serious. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Jesus says that people who commit adultery go to hell. Paul to the Corinthians says the same thing. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, Nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. The practical application of the seventh commandment is to be decisive, principled, unyielding, and ruthless when tempted. So the positive application, the challenging application, the practical application, and the gospel application That's where we're going to finish tonight. That's where we always finish. We always finish by going back to the gospel. What's the gospel application from the seventh commandment? Well, we come to God tonight as people who make mistakes, as people who mess up, as people who fall, as people who sin. What would a God like ours say to those who have broken the seventh commandment in any or all of its applications? What if you're here tonight And you're very aware of your sin in this area, in the past or even in the present. You hate what you've done. You hate what has become of your life and your patterns. Sometimes you feel like you hate yourself. The gospel application is that God wants to speak to the contrite, the penitent, the ashamed and the sorry. To all those who have humbled themselves and laid themselves prostrate at the foot of the cross. Here's some scripture that might help. Psalm 130, verses 1 to 4. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. Romans 8:1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. 1 John 1, 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then 1 Corinthians 6, 11, Remember the context there? We've just read it. Paul has just said that the unrighteous And sexually immoral won't inherit the kingdom of God. Then he writes. And such were some of you. But. But. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the spirit of our God. So there is a way out. There is a way to find forgiveness. There is a person who can provide cleansing from all sin. Not just sin in this area. There's one other great reflection on the seventh commandment found in the life of Jesus. It's his encounter with the woman of Samaria in John chapter 4. He speaks to her at a well in a place called Sychar. In the course of the conversation, Jesus unmasks the woman's sin. He's able to tell her that she has had five husbands who have either died or divorced her. And he's able to expose the fact that she's that the man she's with at the moment isn't her husband. It's an illegitimate relationship, she's breaking the seventh commandment. Now, what does Jesus do in that in that conversation? Well, he exposes her sin, her breaking of the seventh commandment, but he invites her to come to him. And what does she say after he leaves her? Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? It's John 4 29. Her, her encounter with Jesus leaves her with a profound sense. That he is the one who can deal with the sin that has so deeply affected her life. Jesus' understanding of the true demands of the seventh commandment were more intense than that of Moses. You read the seventh commandment and you go, well I haven't done that. But Jesus raises it a level in Matthew chapter 5. But so was his assurance that God's first order of business is not condemnation but forgiveness. For those who who repent of their sin and flee to Christ, there's always forgiveness, always. So that's the seventh commandment. Do not commit adultery. We've thought about the practical application, the challenging application, the practical application and the gospel application. Now as we close, we're gonna pray in response as we have done following these recent commandments. So let's pray together just now. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you are a God who is concerned for our well-being and our good. So thankful that you've given us your word, which acts like a giant light, a giant torch for us as we navigate life in this broken, fallen, sinful world. This evening, we want to pray through some of the things we've talked about. We know the issue we've been thinking about is an awkward one to talk about in a public setting. But we thank you for the great dignity and reverence your word gives to this subject. It doesn't shy away from saying what needs to be said, nor does it give us a free pass to do whatever we want. We thank you that in your wisdom, you've given us the gift of marriage as a creation ordinance. We pray that we would put a high value on marriage and that as followers of Jesus and as a church family, we would see the significance and beauty of Of the marital bond. Your word reminds us that it's a picture, an illustration of the relationship between the Lord Jesus and his church. We thank you that Jesus has so loved the church that he has bled and died for it. We pray that in our marriages, husbands would love their wives sacrificially, and that wives would honor their husbands, and that you would protect Christian marriages from the attacks of the evil one. Father, we know that it's hard to live out the Seventh Commandment in a culture that ignores it and lives in the very opposite way. We know that Western society is no friend of sexual purity, that it doesn't aim to promote purity, but attempts to control the results of impurity. Lord, as we live in a wicked and crooked generation, we pray that you would give us strength to be faithful to your word. We particularly pray for our children and young people who as they grow up will be bombarded by images and media that promote a promiscuous lifestyle. Help us to teach them what your word teaches. Help us to model to them what your word teaches. Help us to show them the better way that is offered to us by the Lord Jesus. And we pray for practical help in keeping the seventh commandment. Help us to read stories like that of Joseph who, who fled from sin, fled from immorality and looked to you. He, he is not our saviour, only Jesus is. But stories like Joseph's help us to see that, that when we trust in you, when we ask for your help, you're more than willing to grant it. Finally, we pray for those who have messed up. We should really pray something like this every week. But we pray for those who have broken the seventh commandment, for those who feel the scars of doing so very deeply and very keenly. We know that Satan is very good at reminding us of our guilt. He's especially good at it when it comes to sin in this area. But we thank you for your words, for the passages we've read, for the gospel hope that you provide for adulterers and those who struggle with lust. Help us to remember that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you that for those who repent of their sin and flee to Christ, there is always forgiveness. How gracious you are, Lord. What mercy you show to us when we least deserve it. Help us to look to Christ this evening, to the one who never sinned, and who never broke the seventh commandment, to the perfect one who has washed away all our sins on the cross. We need him more than anyone else in this world. So help us to fix our eyes on him and depend on him as we seek to live out your words. And we pray all these things in his precious name. Amen.